welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. And so today we're hitting 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. And if you got a Bible, um, just read. It's just four verses. Just Let's just go to it. I'm going to read, and we're going to pray, and then I'm going to speak this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It reads as following. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, honor, when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God, we thank you for your word. May it open us up to hear what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I, I love not only this verse, but the person that wrote this, Peter. Um, because I can relate to Peter you got to remember, this is like 55, 56 AD. This is about 20 years removed since Christ had been crucified on the cross. And Peter was this impetuous, big personality. He was magnanimous. He was demonstrative. He was emotional. He was passionate. This is who Peter is. And now we've got 20 years of of. Peter sort of working the work of Christ out in his life. And this book emerges in, in, in life and in persecution. And, and it's interesting that it would be Peter that writes this book because if I had to give this a sermon title, the sermon title would be called Depressingly Joyful. And you might ask, is there such thing as the ability to mourn and be depressed and joyful? Because these seem to be two polar opposite realities. Uh, because depression, or to be down, is to sink low, is to grieve, is to have sort of this prolonged emotional pain in your life. It's the condition of feeling sad. And yet, joy is the opposite because it's the state of happiness. It's the display of great pleasure. So the question is, is it possible for you to sink low and be happy at the same time? Can you be depressed and, and have great delight at the same time? Uh, can you be down and in your downness be simultaneously up? And this is what this passage is dealing with, the tension, the inconsistency, the incongruity, the contradictions of our life. And Peter knows this, right? He goes from... You know, at the Lord's Supper, Supper, Jesus had told him and the rest of the disciples that 
they was going to forsake him. And Peter was like, far be it from me. And literally at the cross, what is Peter doing? Denying him three times, right? And then he's on the beach ready to cash in his calling. And then Jesus had to come to him and remind him of what he had called him to, right? Peter means Petro, which means rock. Like the church was going to be built on this revelation of God opening Peter and the disciples' eyes to who he is. And here's Peter bearing this name, Rock, 20 years walking now in Christ. And yet he is saying, I am still, in spite of being Rocky, the Rock, right? This pillar in the church. In spite of all that, (laughs) I have these contradictions. I have a certain degree of happiness and sadness in my life. What do you do? And there's nothing like tension, struggle, pain, suffering, persecution, right? That comes into your life through a myriad of things. You name them. For some of you, it could be marriage. For some of you, it could be singleness. For some of you, it could be job loss. For some of you, it could be a child lost. I don't know what it is. And yet God uses it to shape some beautiful, wonderful things if we have eyes and and ears to hear what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this sermon in 1858, November 7th, wrote a sermon called Heaviness and Rejoicing. And he says this about this verse. He says, these verses to a worldly man or a man that don't know Jesus looks amazingly like a contradiction. And even to the Christian man, when he understands it best, it will still be a paradox. In this you greatly rejoice, verse 6, and yet you suffer grief, verse 6. Is that possible? Can there be in the same heart great rejoicing and yet a temporary heaviness? Most assuredly, this paradox has been known and felt by many of the Lord's children. And it is far from being the greatest paradox of the Christian life. Men and women who live within themselves mark their own feelings as Christians will often stand and wonder at themselves. Of all the riddles, the greatest riddle is the Christian man or woman. As to his or her past and his or her pedigree, what a riddle he or she is. He or she is a riddle of of their own existence. How many of you feel your contradiction? How many of you know your life is a riddle? How many of you sense the struggle in your own personal life? I know that to be true in my own life because there's a piece of me that has a bleeding heart. Like I have two streams flowing through me. My mother who has a bleeding heart. There isn't anything she wouldn't do for anyone. She's the consummate people person. And yet my dad is a hustler. That's who he is. He's been married four times. He is a rolling stone. I have six between us, just like six brothers and sisters, and still counting. Growing up as a kid, there was always a new sibling emerging. That's who my dad was. But he was a hustler and he, you know, he, he was passionate about being successful and trying to make money and ambitious. That's who he is. And I find 
both streams, my mom's bleeding heart and my ability to want to be ambitious, both of those things flow inside of me. And no matter how much I don't want to be some of the worst things about my parent, I am. And the older you get, especially when you start parenting, you realize that you do things that your parent used to do. And yet, and yet Peter says this is the natural rhythm of the human heart and the natural process of way things happen. And there's nothing that brings this out greater in our life than through suffering, through persecution, through struggle. And we've all gone through it because that's the tension. You, you know what I'm saying? How do you be confident and not arrogant? How do you be humble in life and not be self-deprecating? And either we're self-deprecating and beating ourselves up because the gospel hasn't fully taken its root in our life and we don't understand the power and liberty that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we are always beating ourselves up. We are always getting saved. We're always wanting to get baptized. We're always trying to get our life right with Jesus because the gospel has not taken root. Or we got this super positive gospel that makes us extremely arrogant and have all kind of assumptions about the way life is. And that is a danger in and of itself, which says you don't have the gospel uh, properly grounded and rooted in your life. And Peter, after 20 years of living out this Jesus thing, I think is able now to speak to us. And as he speaks to the early church, who had lost a lot. And he's speaking to two different types of people. Like if you come to the book of 1 Peter, oftentimes when you talk about persecution, you think of people that had means, who had resources, um, who had a certain degree of privilege, lost it for the sake of Jesus. And to a certain degree, that is absolutely true. That kind of trial. And yet there's the other trial of people who have been marginalized throughout the society who've had to live in that marginality and yet they've had to deal with it constantly in their life. And Peter is saying that there is power and beauty in each of those struggles that God wants to teach us, but it can only happen through suffering. But there's three things that need to happen for you to get this sort of tension, this contradiction understood in your own life. And he brings it out here in three ways. The first way is this. Be resolved in the trial. Be resolved in the trial you are going through. Look with me in verse 6. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had, you may have had, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Do you hear what he's saying? Be resolved. He said, the trial you had, you have, the thing you're going through had to happen. He said, may have had to suffer grief. This had to happen. And I don't know what it is that you are going through but the sooner you go through it, the sooner it goes through you. I don't like grief. I don't like trouble. I don't like struggle. But there's something about that 
that the greatest piece of your life are formed. The greatest truth, the greatest epiphanies, the greatest self-discovery, the greatest parts of your character are formed. And I know we live in America where we want to live these nice, safe, and sanitized lives, right? We, it's built on a culture that if you have money, you have control, and if you have control, you have power, and if you have power, you have the ability to keep yourself fairly sanitized from suffering. And that ain't the Bible. That's America. That ain't Christianity of the Scriptures. That's Christianity of the land. Christianity of the scriptures is something different because it calls you with all your vulnerability and all your nuance into this kind of reality. And that's, that kind of suffering can either be personal, it can be emotional, it can be physical, it can be social, it can be a lot of stuff. But God not, doesn't call you away from it, he calls you into it. Now, some religions deny suffering. They say it's just an illusion, and it purports this notion that you've got to pull yourself away by it, by the power of a positive mindset, or you've got Christianity on some degree that says the reason that you're going through suffering is because you're not behaving right. And the gospel says suffering's coming whether you're behaving right or not. Whether, you, whether you're good or not, whether you read your Bible or not, whether you pray or not, whether you tithe or not, whether you serve or not, it's coming. And sometimes it comes when you think you're on your A-game spiritually. But this is what he's saying. He's saying that suffering comes to you. But the bigger question is, will it come through you? That was the problem with the children of Israel, 400 years of slavery, wanting to be emancipated, crying out to God. And finally, he sends a deliverer in Moses, and they walk out of Egypt with their possessions, their goods. They cross over uh, the Nile on dry land, and, and they're heading to the promised land. And most historians and geographers will tell you that it should have only taken them three days to get into the promised land, and yet it took them 40 years because there they were circling the mountain, dealing with all kinds of pain and hardship, wanting to go back to Egypt because they would not let God's work go through them. So I know what you're thinking. You're saying, all right, if I embrace this, this whole notion of suffering, how long is it going to last? I mean, how long do I got to endure? Well, Peter said, in all this rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer. So what is Peter saying? Peter's saying this suffering is just for a little while. Well, then the next question is, how long is a little while? Because <laughs> I've been at it for months, years. Seems like my life has been marked by this. Look, when you put your life in comparison to eternity, this means nothing. A day to the Lord is as of, of a thousand years. Like, like the little bit of hardship and pain and suffering that we go through is nothing. 
I mean, you think about some of the stuff that you encountered, things that you thought you weren't going to overcome, things that seemed like they just went on and on and on. And you look back having come through them, and they seem like a bat of an eye. They seem like a blip on the screen. And Peter says, for a little while, you have had to deal with this. And that's what suffering does. And there's no way out of it. See, prosperity theology says God owes you a good life. All you got to do is claim your promises. Poverty theology says you're supposed to live a hard life by divesting yourself of all your money, your resources, and everything. And there's errors in both. Paul says, I've learned to be a base, and I've learned to be a bound. I've learned to live with a lot, and I've learned to live with a little. You don't have to go looking for suffering. Suffering is promised to every believer that calls on the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to manufacture it. It'll find you. Just trust me. Just live life long enough, and it'll come. Trust me. The bigger question is, is how will you handle it when it does? Will you be resolved in it? Second, not only will you be resolved in it, but look with me in verse 7. These have come so that, so that, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See that? So that? So that means this is the reason why you need to be resolved in this suffering and these trials in your life. The reason is, is for the strengthening of your faith because in your faith, you, God will be glorified. Every day we are being tested about what we believe in. If you fall to sexual temptation, you are falling to sexual temptation because you really don't believe that Jesus can meet in you what that sex can. If you are absolutely anger and bitter at somebody because they denied or blocked something from you, you felt you had to have, you have made whatever it is you had to have your savior. And what suffering does is, is that it gets rid of all the idols. It deals, it tries to drain all the idols that we look to, that we trust, that we exchange for the true Jesus with these false Jesus. This is what trials and suffering and persecution do. It whittles us down to the nubs. And it says, what do you trust in? Now, I know we like to be spiritual. And I know we love to serve, to talk about how much Jesus is the Lord and Savior of our life. But honey, sweetheart, we never know what that really looks like until the rubber meets the road. I remember a counseling, a buddy of mine who was going through a divorce and his wife was treating him awful. And I said, this is what you need to do. And then I asked myself the very hard question. I said, if I was in his shoes... Could I do what I'm telling him to do? Now, I would like to believe I could. I hope that I could, but I don't know. But I'm not the final authority on truth. God's word is the truth, and I just stand behind it. I don't know how my heart is. It's like somebody that, 
you know, you hear about all these great martyrs for Christ. How many of you would go to another country and take a bullet to the head for Jesus? I'd like to believe that I would. But until somebody puts that revolver to my forehead, I don't know. But what I do know is that whatever kinds of suffering Christ brings into my life, whatever kinds of trials and persecution Christ brings into my life, uh, they come for a purpose. And it's to strip me. It's to dismantle the idols that we all have to deal with in our life. And the reason it's done is for God's glory. God wants to be glorified. God wants you to see him far worthier than anything out there in this planet, as more inherently valuable than anything that you could be grasping for to stake your identity in. And persecution is a way for God to strip you of all that so that you see, so that the lights come on, so that you see him for who he truly is. I don't know about you. Now, you know, parking meters have gotten very sophisticated. All you need is a credit card. You swipe it and you get a couple hours downtown. I've been downtown enough uh, having appointments. But there used to be a time when you had to put coins in the parking meter. And there's nothing where you got to go somewhere and you, and you don't want to get a ticket and you got to play the parking meter and you put your coin in there and you got to dash off and the coin won't fully drop. And then you get ticked. I don't know if any of y'all get ticked like me, so what do I do? I slap the meter, right? Come on, coin, drop. Come on. Come on, coin. What I'm wanting the coin to do is just operate function according to its design, which is for the coin to drop so I can get some time. Do you not know this is exactly what God does in our life? Like he wants the coin to drop. He wants Jesus to be real in your life. And sometimes he takes the circumstances of life and starts batting you around like drop, coin, drop, drop, coin, drop. Will your eyes open up? Will you see that I'm your only savior? I'm your only hope. I'm your only joy. I'm your own satisfaction. And he slaps you around till you get there. Until you're operating according to the design of how God wired you, which is for him. And that's why he says the genuineness of your faith is greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. We don't know how genuine. I'd like to be sincere. We talk about authentic community. We talk about being, you know, um, honest and people of integrity and keeping it real and stuff like that. But we, we don't until the rubber meets the road. I mean... It's lip service, and God refines that in us through the circumstances of life. I mean, he does He does this in Peter. I mean, you think about it. Here's Peter, which I think is an authority, because Peter wasn't always this. I mean, I'm loving Peter showing both sides of himself, his contradiction. Let me give you a contradiction. Here's Peter here in this verse saying, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith is greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, right? Like, and yet he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 31, this is just after the rich young ruler, 
who Jesus had just confronted and said, if you want eternal life, you must sell all your possessions and follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He says, man, that's just too much of a price to pay. And he leaves. And soon after he leaves, what does Peter do? He beats his chest, feels good about his spirituality. And he says to Jesus in verse 28 of Mark 10, he goes, master, we have left everything to follow you. Do you hear how arrogant of a statement that is? This rich young ruler just left with his tail between because he had much possession and he was refusing to give him up. And then Peter comes up and said, Lord, we ain't like him. We left everything to follow you. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter. He says, Peter, I tell you the truth. No one has left home, brother, sister, mother, father, or children, or field for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age? Do you understand what Jesus is telling Peter? He's confronting Peter because Peter is worshiping his faith. He's worshiping his sacrifice. Peter is essentially saying that I left the greater good, which is my stuff, for the lesser good, which is you. Do you hear how demoralizing this is to his Savior? And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 Peter, you tripping. You didn't leave the, le- I'm not the lesser good because you left the greater good. I'm the greater good because you left the lesser good. He said, because what you left will I not make up in your life, right? 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. This is not prosperity. This is not if you give up stuff, God's going, you give up a, a cheap car, God's going to give you a Mercedes. You give up a little starter house, God's going to give you a mansion. This is not what he's talking about. What Jesus is talking to Peter about is he's saying, listen, whatever you lost in this life because of suffering and persecution, I am going to make up in my life, in your life, of my presence. So whatever you gave up, I'm going to make up of my presence in your life, 30, 60, 90, 100 fold. And many of you, you know how that can be true when you come on the other side of your own suffering, the other side of your own trial, the other side of your own pain, and and you came out okay spiritually, man, you're like, man, that thing that I could have had would have ruined me. I always tell people, especially when I'm talking to kids, and I do a lot of work around mentoring, and then they'll ask me a little bit about my life, and I'll tell them about my basketball career, and then they'll say to me inevitably, well, why didn't you make the NBA? And I give them a bunch of reasons why I didn't make the NBA. Part of it was injury. Part of it was I just wasn't good enough. So, but whatever it was, when they said, man, think of you, think of what would have happened had you made the NBA. In my 20s, when my basketball career ended, I didn't know who I was, and I was a Christian. You know what I'm saying? It's like some of you parents, as soon as your kids leave the house and go off to college and you're an empty nester, you don't know who you are apart from your kids. Come on, it's just not me, an athlete. It can be you as a, a mom or a dad or whatever. Your job that you built your whole career and education around went away. And now you don't know who you are. We've all been here on some level. And I didn't know who I am. And I remember being so depressed and down, I walked away from Jesus for a good period of my life, very confused because so much of my identity was was attached to playing sports. And now I look back 
as a 50-year-old man. And I thank God that I never played in the NBA. Thank God that I never made that kind of money. Because it would have been ugly, y'all. It would have been ugly for me. I'm not saying every person, A.C. Green went to the NBA, remained a virgin, loved Jesus, married, and that worked for him. But for me, no. (laughs) He knows what you can have, he knows what you can handle, and he knows what you can't. And that's God's way. Sometimes God allows injury and suffering and pain as a way of protecting you. But whatever you lose, can you believe this promise that Christ can make up what you lost? 30, 60, 90, 100 fold in your life of his presence. So the reason is for the genuineness of your faith that he might be glorified. Lastly, as I close, there's the resolve of our trials that we just need to resolve them. There's the reason, and then there's the last one. You hear the theme, they're ours. There's the response. How do we respond? And I'm going to say two ways. First way is what... Peter initially said in verse 6, he said, rejoice though you grieve. He said, rejoice though you grieve. Rejoice in the Greek is an indicative or a present indicative, which means it is a reality, a present reality in our life. Grieve is a present imperfect, which means it's a past event with a continuing result. So basically he's saying is is that these two things aren't different periods of a person's life. He's saying these things exist at the same time. And so for us Christians, this should, as I said, I think a couple of weeks ago, should take us to this place where we don't have to be um, in denial of the tension. Like we can be optimistic and pessimistic. <laughs> optimistic in a sense that our life is hidden in Christ. That our joy is that this life isn't all there is. That this life is not our best life. It's our worst life. And so we can be optimistic about our future. And yet, in this life, we realize that we live in the tension of the now and not yet. Like, sin exists. Um, and there is brokenness that's ensued as a result of that. There will always be war. There will always be ethnic tension. There will always be classism and struggle. And not that we resign and not that we don't fight any of that stuff, but we understand that we live in that tension. And so we can be the most hopeful people on the planet. And yet we understand the reality of living in this planet. So what I love about Job. 
in Job chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says this, because Job knows how to do this, both of these things well. Job had lost everything. He had lost his family. He had lost his resources. And it says this in verse 20 of Job 1. It says, at this or after this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Mm. Here, Job tears his clothes. He shaves his head. It says he screams, and then he worships. And he does it without sinning. Now, can you imagine how we would respond if somebody came into our morning service and did this? If somebody tore their clothes, shaved their head, and then screamed with an exceedingly loud scream and then start worshiping? This is the kind of Christianity that allows for both and. It's not an either or. It's not all weeping. And it's not all rejoicing. It's both. Now, I know that's a different brand and a different category of Christianity because there tends to be camps of Christianity where, one, it's about loathing, grieving, sin. Every day is Black Friday, right? And yet you've got others that come from a tradition of celebration. And these two war against each other. On one side, there's contemplation and deep reflection. We need to think. We need to meditate. We need to be quiet. We need to be subdued. And yet, other cultures come from high worship, high praise, high celebration, not just contemplation. And these two argue against each other and says, no, this is the pure form of worship. And they say, no, this is the form of pure form of worship. No, this is better Christianity. And they say, no, this is a better form of Christianity. And it's both. And that is the beauty and benefit of being in a multicultural, diverse church because you're going to have people that come from different faith backgrounds, different expressions in the body of Christ that come from both of these traditions and both of them are biblical. And this is exactly what Job does. He is in deep contemplation, and yet this dude is super emotional. He's shaving his head, he's lifting his voice, he's, and he says he does, he does all of it without sinning. The second thing in our response, look at this in verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 6. He says, in all this, in all this, you greatly rejoice. In all this, you greatly rejoice. What is he talking about? He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. What is this that we're greatly rejoicing in? Well, he's not saying rejoice in the suffering. Yes, rejoice in what the suffering produces, but what is it the suffering's producing? You've got to remember, 
verses 1 through 5 is jam-packed with heavy theological doctrine. He starts off with election. Don't have me go there because that's about God choosing some and those God doesn't. He talks about foreknowledge, which isn't foresight. It's in God seeing you down in the future, choosing him, and therefore he chooses you. This is foreknowledge. God, God, God choosing you out of his foreloving ways that he would bring you to himself. And I unpacked that a couple weeks ago that I don't have time now. But he does. And he says, and he's sanctifying us by the work of the Spirit. And he's doing this for the glory of God. He's doing this that his name might be exalted through your life. And he uses suffering for this to happen. He says, so rejoice in all this bedrock doctrine. Rejoice in this truth that the gospel is playing its, it's doing its perfect work in your life. That is the good news. That is how God is working in our life. Is that because of God's election, because of God's foreknowledge, because of his sanctifying work, you are in the center of his hand. There's nothing you are going through. There's no circumstance that is spinning outside of God's control. He has you in the palm of his hand. He is having his perfect work. He's doing what he does. And it may not make sense to you, but it makes complete sense to him. And you don't have to know because you are not omniscient. And sometimes in life, you may never know, but God is doing his perfect work. He is faithful who began this work. He's faithful to complete this work in you. And so as we reflect this morning on our contradictions that don't seem at times to be reconciled, can we be comfortable allowing the strings to dangle in our life? Can we let our hair down and breathe? Can we be a different brand of Christianity that's honest and genuine and say, I'm not what I want to be, And I want to be what I'm not at the same time. Now, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus understood what it meant to rejoice and grieve because that is what the cross is. Jesus at the cross endured it for the joy set before him and yet went through the most horrific, grieving, painful, traumatic experience ever known to mankind. Not because the beatings he took on the cross because there had been many people who had been crucified. It was God taking from the first Adam to Jesus, the second Adam, taking all of the sin of the whole human race upon his shoulder, upon him, and bearing it for those who would call on his name. And so so today, 
as we come to the communion table, can you bring your joy and your sadness to him? Can you allow that to be reconciled? This is part of the reason Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us to see the redeeming work of Christ through our own suffering. And so this morning, as we come to the communion table, let's reflect on Jesus' life and how it impacts us. Jesus, I thank you this morning for your grace and your work. I thank you that you are a God that does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. And that doesn't always mean good things happen in our life, that sometimes it accelerates suffering to bring out the good. And so today, as we come to the communion table and partake of it, your body, your blood was shed because you rejoiced and you grieved on that cross for us to experience the full weight of our the full scope of our humanity. And so as we come to the communion table, may we reflect on that in faith. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.